0: Wherever a parent is, we're wanting to say, here's how we can help you help your kids in whatever amount of time you have with them.
1: Hello, and welcome to the Arts of Language podcast with Andrew Poudois Well, Andrew, another decade is come and gone.
0: A decade?
1: Well, in terms of number of podcast oh, episodes. Well,
0: I knew time was um, speeding <laughs> up as the universe expands, and I, I thought, well, that was the fastest decade. But okay, <laughs> well, but ten- no, we're we're like in a cycle of ten, and this is mm-hmm. and ask Andrew anything. It is. Okay. It is, and so I hope I have, you got some good ones.
1: I do. I have a handful which means I have five. We'll see if we can get to them all. So Liz says, Hello, I've been listening to your presentations, and they've been very enlightening. I'm sorry, that was totally self-serving. I love reading positive feedback about our podcast. So thank you, Liz. Yeah. <laughs> I especially enjoyed nurturing competent communicators. I've since ordered the poetry memorization program. <laughs> also, another shameless plug for our poetry memorization course and we will look forward to starting the program once it arrives. Here's her question. I want to know your thoughts about following along with the audio version of books with book in hand. So like Audible, reading sure. books out loud. Yeah. My son loves to do so and follows the words on the page as he's listening. I'm assuming it's beneficial. What are your thoughts? Do you think it's a good practice?
0: Absolutely. That's a that's a quick one because the The key there is that he loves doing it, and that is clearly the indicator that it is good for him and he's being enriched by seeing and hearing at the same time. You know occasionally there can be some confusion if there are different editions, mm-hmm. and you know there can be slight differences. but if it's an older book, a classic book, it's probably you know pretty consistent. if she had said... I'm thinking about making him do this or mm. suggesting that he do it, then I would qualify that and say, well, if it's working, great, but if it isn't, don't push it. And, uh, you know, I've seen it go both ways. Some kids will be much happier listening and not trying to follow along because they find that frustrating. Mm, right. Whereas other kids would get an enhanced comprehension. From doing that. I remember one little story I had. uh, Well, when she was a girl, now she's (laughs) all grown up with kids and even worked for us for a while. But Mm -hmm. when she was a girl uh, in uh, a class, I was teaching and we were reading Tale of Two Cities, Mm, which is a very challenging novel. She was probably, I don't know, 15. And she hated that book. She complained every class for several classes. She's like, this doesn't make any sense. I don't know why anyone writes such stupid, incomprehensible stuff, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> and I just got her the Audible and yeah. I said, okay, just listen to it. Mm-hmm. And if you want, watch the words go by on the page, but just listen to it a few times it does get better, and uh, she found that to be tremendously helpful. And by the end of the class, the you know the end of the book part of that class, she said, "This is the greatest book ever written," mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. she still thinks that to this day. But um, one interesting thing about you know children when they're reading literature that may have unfamiliar words that are taking time to decode, and it breaks their flow. If they just hear the word, they know what it means, then they keep the flow. So it improves their comprehension experience. And then, of course, older books sometimes have long sentences. And to read a long sentence well, you kind of have to already know what it's going to do. Like, where's the subject going to be and where are the emphases and all that. So uh, oftentimes, Listening to someone read it well really improves your understanding of the more complex language that's included there, so uh, I think it's a great approach, and uh, you know as long as the child is doing well and enjoying it uh, i I think it's a fantastic resource
1: well i'm personally relieved to hear you say that because of course, I did that with my youngest who's Mental abilities were higher than his ability to decode, Mm -hmm. and he also had the task of annotating in the book. So I just let him listen to it as he was reading it, and I think that really helped, as you say, his comprehension. And, And he was fine doing it as long as he got to lay on the couch in various contorted positions, you know, Mm. ADD and all. (laughs) I'm pretty
0: sure my nine-year-old grandson at this moment would not want to do that Mm, mm -hmm. because his greatest condition on earth possibility is playing Legos while listening to audiobooks. That would be, you know, the perfect setup for him. But I suspect, you know, as his reading picks up, and he, you know, has that opportunity. He may enjoy yeah. watching those words go by as he's hearing an expert read the story as well.
1: Exactly. So Petrina from- Petrina? On- yeah. not a great name?
0: That is a beautiful name.
1: She's from Ontario, Ontario, Canada. Canada. Let me just qualify. I would assume, yeah. yeah. She says, I'm a mom of eight and my oldest is 12. So we're heading into the teen years. I recently read, however imperfectly, and I would love to hear you elaborate on your experience when you homeschooled your daughter. I read that she worked her way through a list and studied four hours a day, reporting her time in 15-minute increments. I would love to hear more about your experience and trying this, anything you would do differently.
0: Yeah, it's a story I've told many times and I, I, I did write about it or talk about it in that. The reason that we did that was because she had become hard to manage and her very busy mother was kind of starting to tear her hair out. And it was it was kind of a desperate effort by me to inject into the situation something that would get them out of each other's irritation zone.
1: Mm-hmm. So part of the strategy was dad help.
0: Dad, yeah. But, you know, I don't know that you would have to have that unpleasant circumstance to mm-hmm. make it work well. The idea really came to me as a result of contemplating Oliver DeMille's talk and, and in his book, Leadership Education, on the, the seven keys of great teaching. Mm-hmm. And one of those is structured time, not content. Mm-hmm. So the, the real essence there was a shift from a checklist of things to get done which for some kids, particularly certain 12-year-olds, their goal would be to get done with as little effort as possible to shift her over into how you're using time. And so that was why, and for readers not familiar with this, we should try to link because I can't tell the whole story right now. Right. But the shift was for her to keep track of her time and her responsibility was to study, and I just picked a number, four hours in a day. Because mm-hmm. I thought that's about as much or more than most kids would get if they were, say, sitting in a classroom for six, seven hours. Mm-hmm. But the idea was to shift the accountability from someone telling her what to do to her Deciding how to use her time. And that's kind of what every 12, 13 year old kid wants in the world is to be more independent. They want to grow up. They want to be grown. They want to be adults, but there's a pathway to get there. So uh, I don't know how I can expand on that idea for this particular questioner, but I think, you know, the system I came up with was very loose in terms of what she studied Mm -hmm. and very tight on recording what she was doing. Mm -hmm. And then there was an accountability set in where she had to write two paragraphs a day and fax that to me along with her time (laughs)
1: log.
0: And I even put the fax machine in her bedroom Mm. and then it went straight into my computer. So whether I was home or not, I got the records.
1: Right, of course. Today we wouldn't need a fax. You can just take a picture with your phone and today text you it. would not need a
0: fax. <laughs> that is very true.
1: We don't yeah. even have a fax number here at Iew anymore. Um,
0: yeah, we we did, but you know why? Right, you right. Know? So that, like any system you set up for a a child, it has a a duration, but it's not a permanent fix. It's like right. you come up with new, a new motivational system or some kind of economic system or some kind of chores system or some kind of study accountability system. And, you know, like any new thing, it works for a while, mm-hmm. but you kind of have to tweak it as it goes. And then at a certain point, it kind of hits its end. Mm-hmm. And then you say, did this change the habits, behavior, character, attitude And hopefully you saw improvement as a result of it.
1: Right. And if I could just comment on this as well, there's a book. It's called One Life Solution. And he talks about doing a time audit. So kind of that same idea, just keeping track of what you do all day. And it's really surprising how much time you actually spend not doing anything of value. It's
0: frightening. Yeah. It really is. I I got that idea – The first real job that I had, which was other than, you know, McDonald's or working in a pet store and being told what to do all the time, the first job where I had responsibilities to get things done Mm -hmm. day after day after day, my department head did that to me. She made me record Mm. every 15 minutes what I was doing Mm. from when I woke up to when I went to sleep. It was, oh, it was painful but it's funny how it does shift your attitude your behavior and you realize wow like julia said to me one time i called her up how's it going she goes dad i realized something what would you realize i realized that i i spent an hour and 45 minutes eating snacks <laughs> wow right i mean right. you know you could nag a kid you're always in the kitchen you're always yeah. but she figured that out on her own and i would say she grew up to become possibly one of my most organized and efficient adult children, especially now that she's got four kids Mm -hmm. and she's very much aware of the value of time.
1: That's great. It's great. a great life skill for sure. Okay. Jacinta asks, How can a teacher keep students engaged when working through a Unit 6 multiple-source text-fused outline? So the Unit 6 is where you take multiple sources, create source outlines on a topic, and then Mm -hmm. fuse them together. It's a little complicated. You go through that very clearly in the teaching writing video course, Teaching Writing, Structure, and Style, as well as for the students in the structure and style for students. So
0: how do you keep students engaged? I guess I would I would ask uh, the questioner here a few questions to try to figure out why they are not engaged. Is it because they are in a demographic where they're so distracted by modern life and technology and they just don't care about anything? Mm. That could be one problem, I'm guessing that it might be more of a problem where the content is either too sophisticated in terms of reading level or comprehension, or it's just too irrelevant Mm -hmm. to them. So following kind of a basic rule of source texts and you know, every time I do this Reaching Reluctant Writer talk, I always say source text should be, number one, at or below the reading level of the student and, if possible, interesting to some degree. Yes. If you have those two things going, everything goes more smoothly. And so I fear that, you know, it's easy for teachers – and I've made this mistake too – to get into a, a research project, a Unit 6 or wherever you want to go with that, and be dealing with source materials that are not easy to read. Mm-hmm. And that would be the first caution is, are these you know books, articles, websites, whatever you've got, are they just too challenging to understand? And then too many of the kids on the edges of comprehension – just tune out. I don't know what that means. And then they're, they're done. The other thing is, are you researching something that is supposedly important, but doesn't engage the imagination sufficiently? And it's it's hard. you know. We've written a lot of source texts. And I would say that the unit six source texts are the most challenging because you're trying to kind of be serious, be academic, get good information. But how do you write it in such a way that it doesn't sound like a really tedious textbook. And sadly, I've seen some textbooks that I would consider some of the worst written stuff that I've ever seen because it strips out Mm -hmm. so much of the things that might be interesting because they're not important enough. Mm -hmm. Whereas really, if you can get the interesting stuff in – Around the important stuff, then it's kind of like you know you take your your medicine with the spoonful of sugar, right? (laughs) Exactly. Use a a hackneyed cliche, but uh, you know to answer this question, I would have to kind of know a little bit more. You know what? Who's she teaching? Mm -hmm. Are these kids perhaps second language learners, or some of them? Mm -hmm. What time of day? are you doing this? You know, I've seen huge differentials between working with kids at 10 in the morning versus 2 in the afternoon in terms of their being engaged in in something more technical. Also, there's the question of, is it been modeled enough? Like, are, are you doing it together so that everybody's reading the same thing Making the same notes, doing the fused outline, have you done that together a few times so that now if you say, okay, here's a set of source text, try it on your own, do they have enough experience knowing what to do? Right. Whereas if you just explain it and say, here, go do it, you're going to lose a big chunk of them there in the middle. So I would encourage if this listener is actually listening – (laughs) <laughs> I would encourage her to reach out to someone on our schools team mm-hmm. and maybe get some coaching from one of our educational consultants mm-hmm. uh, because there are – there's some, some questions I would have before I would feel like I could really answer this well.
1: Sure. Okay, Jacinta. The schools hotline is – the easiest <laughs> way to get a hold of us there is schools at IEW.com. And one of our experienced educational consultants will gladly reach out to you. And if he or she cannot answer the question, we'll get, we'll pull out the big guns and let Andrew answer directly. I'll so, talk to her on the phone. Yeah, there you go. All right. I have another one from Sandra. Sandra says, do you have any tips on how to get teens become addicted to reading more than playing video games? <laughs> <laughs> uh Disclaimer here, Andrew is never given these questions ahead of time, so he's kind of on the spot. This is a tough one.
0: Well, video games are specifically engineered to be addictive, so there's really no way you can easily convince someone to stop wanting to do something that is hyper-stimulating dopamine receptors. Right. I mean it's a it's a neurophysiological problem. There are some ways you can approach it, but there's no guaranteed solution, depending on the age of the teen. And mm-hmm. I would say someone who's thirteen versus someone who's seventeen, uh it's it's a very different ballgame there. So uh you'd kinda have to look and say, is this teenager mature enough to understand that the video games are an entertainment and need to be limited for their own good. Yes. In which case you try to reach an agreement Mm -hmm. and say, let's set a, a time limit and that's all you get. Now, what do you do with the extra time well, hopefully, read some books, mm-hmm. get some audiobooks going, yeah. get something to fill that time. Another approach would be just to set down a law, you know, and say, here's the new rules of video games in our home. I have read articles from time to time over the past decade or more of parents who successfully challenged a teenager to give up video games entirely for a limited period of time. Right. So let's do a challenge. Can you live for three months without video games? And then work hard to fill that time in with valuable things that create a sense of satisfaction, mm-hmm. kind of the healthy dopamine releases, mm-hmm. getting a hobby or doing stuff with the family or playing board games or things like that. And I actually've heard stories of kids who did that. They they went on this, you know, however many months you wanna try. And after that they came back and realized that those video games weren't as important or valuable or necessary to their happiness and well being as they thought before. Right. So, you know, you you have to choose your battles carefully. I know one family in particular the the teenage boys it's all they ever wanted to do all they ever wanted to do was play video games and it was always a battle but then they grew up and they ended up one of them went to Notre Dame the other went to um Georgia Tech and then they kept going and now like one of them's a doctor and one of them's a you know aerospace engineer mm-hmm. with a PhD and something like that. (laughs) I mean, so, you know, you don't despair because a kid at 15 doesn't have career mindedness because they're not serious about study because, you know, they're going to outgrow it eventually. So, you know, choosing battles. But I, I don't think there's anything you can do to necessarily convince logically a student that age by saying something Completely ineffective. Like, don't you think you'd be better off playing less video games and reading more books? Because you know, first of all, I object to anyone who says, "Don't you think?" Because all you're doing is inviting an argument right mm-hmm. there,
1: mm-hmm. especially for a teenager. <laughs> yeah, and and there
0: are, um, there's a, a book by um, Todd Wilson. I think it's called Taming the Techno Beast or mm-hmm. something, and he he does a very good and i think balanced job of helping parents think through these issues and of course you know for girls it's not necessarily the the high stimulation video games that are as engaging it can often be the social media world and the yes, you know gaining the dopamine dump by getting more likes and clicks and comments and all that stuff but you know even the the people who engineer social media admit that they do it intentionally to make it addictive mm-hmm. which is interesting because many of those people in high tech high profile management positions don't let their kids have unlimited access and even prevent their kids from getting things like phones and tablets until they're you know older so yeah. it it's a weird world and i would suspect one of the hardest times to sure. be a parent right now.
1: Well Sandra, I hope that helps. Katie has a question for you. Is there any way that a Charlotte Mason approach to homeschooling and writing could include the IEW components less formally taught? Written narrations, better oral narrations, grammar, dictation, recitation, etc. Methods that help to shape them into the great writers and all topics of writing that you teach in structure and style for students, etc. We just did a podcast, Katie, on Charlotte Mason and how there's some there's some intersection between I.E.W. and the copy work and the dictation and narration. So I that might help. But Andrew, is are more that you can well, add to I, that? Yeah, I don't
0: see any conflict. And sometimes people do see a conflict because they're reading things that Charlotte Mason said that are specific, I would say, to younger children. Mm-hmm. And a lot of Charlotte Mason adherents or those who appreciate her philosophies and suggestions have younger children. And, uh, you know, I don't disagree with any of it, really. I mean, we talked about copywork. We talked about how doing keyword outlines is one step from copywork. There, there is kind of this leap that I see people trying to make from a verbal narration to a written narration. Mm -hmm. And that's probably where the challenge is, yes, my child does really well with narration, but when I ask them to write it, they can't. Right. Well, I don't know that there's a lot in the Charlotte Mason pedagogy, if you want to call it that, to build that bridge. Right. And that's why I would say our... Units, our structural units, fit right in there and build that bridge. Because now we we start working with source text, keyword outlines, and retelling, which is one step removed from copy work. You can keep going with the verbal narration, move into story sequence chart, and then they start to get a sense of okay, when you're telling a story, this is how you retell it. Um, so it's not a narration from experience, but it is. In a way, a written narration of a story that was read and the keyword outline serves as that bridge. And then we get to unit five, well, unit four, we teach some organizing, presenting information. Unit five, now you're into the pictures Mm -hmm. and that would be event description. And so that is kind of like narrating a sequence of events that happen, but we're still uh, having the kids do outlines and helping them learn to ask the kind of litany of questions that allows them to create the outline so then they know what to write. Unit 6 research, then Unit 7 is right in that zone, Mm -hmm. uh, right about blah, 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 whatever, something that happened to you, something you did, your imagination. So... I think that for a lot of people who have started with young children in the Charlotte Mason approach and have been kind of determined to continue that on into the upper elementary and middle grades have found that our IEW approach is perfect. Yep. And that if Charlotte Mason had known about such an approach, <laughs> she would have embraced it fully. Yes. Uh, and so there's a lot of consonants, but there does seem to be that, that kind of assumption that if a child can tell something, they should be able to write it down, and that just doesn't always happen.
1: Right. Such a great foundation. These Charlotte Mason adherents are laying for their children to be able to do <laughs> structure and style writing, so I love it. Okay, the la- I say the best to last. I actually had to dig for this one. This was sent to us. By Mindy, (laughs) she asks, would you ever consider serving as Oklahoma's state superintendent?
0: (laughs) Absolutely not. Um, (laughs)
1: Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, minute. i got to finish the rest of the question. Okay. (laughs) What an incredible difference you could make if the officials listened to you for Oklahoma children and families. And for those of you who don't know, listeners, we live in Oklahoma, which is why this listener is thinking That would be a good place. If a political office isn't an option, what is one thing you could think could be done to impact or at least speak up for the thousands of kids in Oklahoma and across the nation and around the world who are receiving an education that is below what they are capable of?
0: Yeah. So I actually have a pretty good acquaintance who is the superintendent of public instruction for a state, not Oklahoma. And I had a chance to meet with him for a couple hours last time I was in that state. And he confirmed something which I have long suspected and that it is the worst possible job mm-hmm. because number one, you have this responsibility. Everyone perceives that somehow you're going to do something to improve education in the state with no real authority to do that because education law is inside the legislature Mm -hmm. and education policy generally is inside school districts.
1: Right, right.
0: And school districts have to be accountable to state law, but that doesn't mean that they do so willingly or happily. And, of course, in the country today, we're seeing all sorts of conflicts between state leaders like governors and teachers' unions and school districts and school boards, which is probably the the hardest nut to crack, and their agendas are completely different. So, you know, I don't know that even the best person – and I would not be the best person – but I I don't know that even the best person – Could do much inside that job. Mm -hmm. The other thing that my friend told me, he said, I would love to get involved in curriculum, but that is actually the least important thing that I have to deal with. I'm dealing with drug policies Mm -hmm. and, you know, family welfare and classroom issues and politics that are not even remotely connected with reading, writing, and arithmetic. And in his particular state, drug abuse is is a major problem in young people in that state. And so, you know, the big push is to say, what can we do in schools to help people be less pathologically handicapped Mm. rather than what can we do to these schools to make them educationally better? I do know a few people that are peripherally involved in politics. One of my very good friends is running for Congress. And it seems to be the consensus that running for school board actually would give you more ability to directly influence the lives of children, not on a statewide scale, but on a a smaller scale, uh, because school boards do have a lot to do with Policy, Mm -hmm. And, of course, to be kind of a conservative who would stress reading, writing, arithmetic, academics, traditional values kind of thing, in a school board world today, uh, you would probably discover you're a minority in most places. I don't know. Oklahoma might be an exception because – It's a it's a small state, and you know it's different. But it's uh, it's almost tragic how difficult it is for a person who wants to do good to get involved in a political situation where they actually can do much. Yeah, yeah. And uh, so, so what's
1: the alternative, Andrew Pudua? What can you do?
0: Well, I I don't know. I, you know, once upon a time, we had this kind of slogan, every parent homeschools. Mm-hmm. It's just some do it more than others. And my feeling is that if we could support parents, whether they have their children in public schools or in other schools or homeschool or whatever, if we can support all the parents in it's just some basics like read to your kids every day practice math and spelling with them so they can learn math facts and spell words. Y- you can do that without pulling kids out of a school completely and it can make a huge difference. And we've talked, we've sat at this very table and thought about how instrumental our parents were in our success in school. Yes. And that was 50 years ago. Yep. It's even more essential, but I think the the move is kind of towards saying, well, you know, you either trust the school completely and then, you know, with with your family time, you're not doing academic stuff or you pull your kids out completely mm-hmm. and then take that over entirely. And for some families, that's just not reasonable, or possible, realistic. So I think if we could – and I think we do this, you know, in our, our company. We serve many different demographics. But wherever a parent is, we're wanting to say, here's how we can help you help your kids in whatever amount of time you have with them. Yes. So it kind of has to be a grassroots okay. level. But I do share the frustration of this questioner who looks at – Politics and people who have the appearance of being able to have power, and yet they seem to not get much done for their you know four year tenure or however long they're in there. And um, you know, a school superintendent for a state serves at the pleasure of the governor, and like I said, it's probably one of the worst jobs you could dream up because you have all this responsibility to improve things. And very little authority to make widespread changes. Yeah. So that's a tough one. But I I will say that I don't have I, I am not called personally to political office for a few reasons. Number one, I I don't I don't do well when people hate me and <laughs> say nasty things about me or dredge up some something I said fifteen years ago mm. and condemn me for it. Mm-hmm. Um. And that's just the nature. You have to be extremely tough now. Mm-hmm. And I am not that way. Mm-hmm. The second thing is, as you know, I do not do well with a lot of meetings. <laughs> it's and, true. Uh, I, I, and all, all of my political ambitions were completely removed the first time I sat through a three-hour school board meeting about 30 years ago. <laughs> and I thought, if this is what this job is, it is not for me. <laughs>
1: well, and I'll just add one more little reason why this is not a good idea. You do a really important work here at IEW, and we need you here. Well,
0: I like to think
1: so. But... <laughs> all right. Well, that's it.
0: Okay. Well, we got through all five.
1: Yes. Well, I think we had a five plus one. Five so, plus one. Okay. Listeners, if you have any questions for Andrew
0: that I can surprise him with. Another decade from now, we'll, yes. we'll address those. <laughs>
1: Give me your best questions at and just send them to podcast at IEW.com. And we'll get you on. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thanks so much for joining us. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, please subscribe to our podcast in iTunes, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, or Spotify. Or just visit us each week at IEW.com slash podcasts. Here you can also find show notes and relevant links from today's broadcast. One last thing. Would you mind going to iTunes to rate and review our podcast? This really helps other smart, caring listeners like you find us. Thanks so much.